Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver with the Doctor Weighs In, and my guest today is Farzad Mostashari. Did I say your name right? Yes, you did. Oh, good. I'm getting good at that. He's the co-founder and CEO of a very interesting company that I have been following, actually, I think since you founded it about six years ago. Alidate is a um, company that has a goal of helping physicians stay independent. And they do this by helping practices move away from fee-for-service and towards value-based care. Dr. Bastashari has spent his career his whole career at the forefront of healthcare policy and health information technology, including, and I think that's when I first met you, uh, serving as the national coordinator for health IT at the Department of Health and Human Services. And after he left there, he was also a distinguished expert at the Brookings Institute Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform. And so um, we asked Farzad to join us today to bring us up to date on what Allidate's efforts to transform physician practices have actually accomplished. But I'm going to start off by asking you kind of an unusual question. Why should anyone beside physicians care whether doctors remain independent or not? I think that's an important question. A couple of things. One is we want to have choice. And the experience in, in research after research has shown that when there are fewer choices in a market, that quality suffers, cost goes up, and, um, and access uh, gets worse. So particularly, I think, in many parts of our country where, um, where there's already uh, very little choice, where there's already local monopolies emerging, uh, and where there's very little supplies, the other areas, like rural areas, um, it, it's very important that we keep the dwindling stock of, of, of independent primary care um, thriving. And uh, the good news is that actually this, this transition from fee-for-service to value is a game where they're ahead, um, where their actual relationship with patients, their responsiveness to the patients and their independence um, actually become huge assets that can help them outcompete the, the larger monopolistic health systems. So that's kind of the paradox of size here um, when it comes to independent practices and value-based care. Excellent answer. And before we dive into things, if you could just give us a brief definition so everybody's on the same page about what exactly is value-based care. You're going to talk about ACOs, just a sentence yep. or two about that. And, and if you're going to talk about the Medicare Shared Savings Program, a few sentences about that. And then I'm going to dive into what you are doing. Sure. sure. So value-based care is where the, your success as a business, a value-based payment model, your success as a business is not tied to how many people you can see in how short a time, <laughs> which is what, you know, fee-for-service does to primary care, it's rather tied to what are the outcomes you can generate for that population of patients uh, that you are the shepherd to the flock of. So that's, to me, what value-based care is, is fundamentally, does it change the business model? So preventing a stroke is more profitable than treating a stroke. 
um, some of the different flavors of that. Like I don't think, um, you know, pay for performance or even primary care capitated payments are fit, honestly, under that, that rubric. I think to really be doing transforming the incentives and therefore transforming the care requires accountability for the total cost of care where you say, I am, I'm going to take accountability for things I don't control, but I can influence. So total cost of care accountability, let's take a group of patients and let's together say, what do we expect to spend on this group of patients next year? And if we can do better than expected, then if I prevented a hospitalization, then I should get some credit for that. Um, one of the forms of this, there's many forms of where primary care providers are taking on this accountability for total cost of care. The most kind of advanced form of it is where they are uh, taking full cap, 100% risk on percent of premium from a Medicare Advantage plan, where say 85% of the cost gets there, there, they get all that money up front and then they pay the bills for the hospitals and the specialists and so forth out of that money. Uh, that's the most advanced form of it. And primary care docs in those contexts can make two or three times what they make in, in a fee-for-service world. A more introductory or middle ground layer to that is where it's called an accountable care structure, where there's more of, a, of an accounting that's done after the year is over. You set a benchmark. You say, this is what we expect to spend. The year is over. The payer counts up the claims and says, okay, costs either came in below or above what we said they would come in. And you either get a reward or you get some money pulled back under a two-sided risk model. So those are some of the terms that we're going to be talking about, right? Value-based care, total cost of care, accountable care, uh, upside, downside, uh, two-sided uh, models. All right. So thank you for that. Um, let's dive in. Yeah. Um, I, I'm hoping that you can explain to me uh, exactly how you built the company yeah. to be able to help physicians move to value-based care. You know, we've been trying to change physicians' behavior forever. Most of the things that we've tried have not worked. <laughs> yeah, it turns out people, agree with me people, don't like to be, people don't like to be changed. <laughs> and that happens in, in, we know that from our patients too, right? Yes. We try to influence patient behavior. Yes. But you've built a whole bunch of tools to yeah. try and make it easier uh, for doctors to transition because it's a completely different way of thinking about things. If I'm fee-for-service, yeah. I'm going to run as fast as I can for patient yeah. to patient. I'm going to do a bunch of procedures and I'm going to, you know, optimize my billing. Yeah. But if I'm doing uh, value-based care, I'm, I'm actually thinking about what I was taught in medical school is how to get you better. Yeah. So how do we build the company? 20 years of failure. Um, <laughs> 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 we built the company on, on, incorporating lessons that my co-founders and I learned over decades of trying to get behavior change, but only addressing one of the pieces. So let me give you some examples of this. One of the first things that we, my um, co-founder Matt Kendall and I did was in the primary care information project in New York City, where we, um, our goal was population health and public health through healthcare and through technology. And we thought that, that the, the diagnosis of it was going to be, it's just going to be technology is going to change it. And we realized very quickly that you couldn't even get adoption of technology without not only really listening to 
the the frontline staff and 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 creating um, empathy with with them. But you also need help. You need help at the at the elbow. So we created this concept uh, that eventually became the Regional Extension Center program to help doctors move from paper to electronic health records of having uh, a a group of of coaches um, that would help be experts and help guide that transition away. Um, so we did that, uh, and and so we said, okay, you need the technology, but you also and you need the data, but you also need the coaching. And we successfully got 143,000 primary care docs through the Regional Extension Center program from paper to electronic, but they weren't really focused on population health, on preventing the stroke more than, more than you know, doing the, the billing for the office visit. And what I realized was painfully that through these sort of regulatory and compliance programs, you could get people to check the boxes, but you can't make them want to change how they care for patients unless you also fundamentally change their economic um, model and give them an ability to do what they know is the right thing for the patient while not going broke. Uh, so that's where the three pieces of this pat come together. In order to get sustained behavior change, you need to address all three simultaneously. The triple-stranded DNA is the data and technology, the coaching, and a new economic model. And that's what Allidaid does is we provide the practices who choose to go on this journey with us with all the data and technology that um, that they need that in that encapsulates those workflows and makes it easier to do the right thing. We give them the the at the elbow coaching um, and uh, the 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 motivation and the troubleshooting and and fitting things into their their workflow, kind of like a you know your your personal trainer. Uh, that pushes you at the gym. Um, and then third, we help them get contracts from payers and from Medicare and navigate the regulatory craziness um, to be able to actually access these fair total cost of care contracts. So I, I want to dive into those a little bit more too. Can it, I think it would be helpful if you could give us a few examples. I know you talk about streamlining workflows. Yeah. Can you think of one of your practices where you did that. What did it take? How yeah. did you do it? And what yeah. kind of result did you get? Yeah, great, great example. Um, so my mom um, went to the emergency room. And after she went home, um, she was not totally stable. Didn't really know what was going on. Wasn't really back on her feet, as it were. And no one from her primary care doctor's office called her the next day or the day after or the day after to check in on her. That's pretty, you know, pretty clear that that would be a good thing for our patients. That could prevent them from going back into the emergency room or being back in the hospital. But no one from her primary care practice called. And I don't blame them because that just doesn't happen in America today. That's not a thing. Getting a call from your primary care practice after an emergency room is not a thing that happens, except in allidate practices. So what did it take in, in Kansas um, in March? 98% of the 
of people who went to the emergency room who were in our contracts with those practices in, in, in Kansas got a phone call. 98% got a phone call from their practices. So what did it take to achieve that? It took one, the practices having the data. You can't call if you don't know. <laughs> and so, so there was a tremendous amount of plumbing that went into plumbing and pipe fitting to just get that data in real time from the hospital reg registration systems when that patient leaves the emergency room that triggers a notification and they can get it a text message for it but better yet we created in our tool a work list that lists the people who just left and there's a workflow there that makes it easy for some someone on those practices staff to be able to fulfill that commitment that we're going to call every patient after the emergency room visit. So now you have the data, now you have the tool, you have to have the will. And those practices have to understand that, that if they can call that patient and avert a return to the emergency room, that's a $2,000 phone call. So now it makes sense for them to spend the time and money um, having it be someone's job to come in in the morning and boot up the machine and go to that part and see, oh, I have three people on my emergency room list. I'm going to call them. And they're going to need someone who's the Allidate coach who at the end of the week comes by and looks at the data and says, hey, we said we were going to do this. You had seven patients who this happened to, but you only called four of them. What happened? What happened to the other three? Oh, Mary was out sick? Well, who, who covers for her when she's out sick and works through the detail and nitty gritty of how do we get better and better fidelity to the, this new practice model, this new habit of the practice that you know led to us having a 13% reduction in all-cause emergency room visits. With that practice? Across or the entire Allidade network. Oh, across the entire network. Yeah. Um, wow, that's really interesting. Um, so, give me another example. You talk sure. about um, you talk about helping with contracting. I could imagine that that would be important because the individual practices probably weren't doing a lot of that before. Um, any examples where you where you got people a better yeah. help people me, learn how to get better deals? Yeah. Well, let me let me uh, let me stay with Kansas then. Uh, one of one of the docs who joined us um, at our first board meeting, where we brought all the practice together, I got so emotional. I got you know I, I got chills when he said we were discussing the this contract offer from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas, and we we were saying like you know we're now kind of on the same side of the table as as the Blue Cross plan because we have the same incentives. They want to improve quality access and reduce cost, and so do we. It's not a zero-sum negotiation anymore. And therefore, we're willing, they're willing to engage in all these discussions now where we were discussing, well, what, what should the quality measures be? What should the thresholds be? What is the, you know, what, what, what percent do the savings kick in and all those issues? And, and this doc said, I have never negotiated with a health plan. I just, I get handed a contract. And my, my, only, my only decision is, do I, do I sign it as is, or do I not get paid by that payer? 
that's the only choice I've ever had. And he was like, now I'm sitting with 20, 30 other practices and we're actually talking to a health plan. Pretty amazing. Really, um, I didn't have that experience because I worked at Kaiser Permanente. And when I listen to you talk about what you're building with Alladay, it seems to me that you're that you are actually building the same kind of infrastructure that those of us who practice at Kaiser or a Mayo or a Geisinger um, get because they're a because they're a part of that organization. Is is that a fair comparison? Bless you. Yeah, that's my dream. That's my dream. Is and we're not nearly there yet. In some ways, though, I think we're able to surpass, in some ways, some aspects of those systems. We certainly don't have the degree of systemness and the ability to integrate in all of the different parts of the system, this imaging and the lab and the specialists and in, in a seamless way. That is the long-term vision, Pat. Um, uh, but in terms of having the tools, the, the economic models, the coaching, um, the community, right? You're exactly right. Our vision is of creating a, a virtual version of that high value um, primary care led network. Um, but there's some ways in which these practices can surpass even the Kaisers and Geisingers. And that's in the touch with the patients. I had, I'm going to tell another parent story with their permission. My dad had a health scare and he, uh, he put on his, his jacket and tie, which he doesn't usually, he's been retired for many, many years. He drove his car, paid for parking in the hospital. He hates paying for parking, uh, walked into the, the IMA and stood in front of the receptionist and said, I've had this, this health scare, this thing that's happening. And he could see his primary care doc flitting behind the rooms in the corridor, trying not to glance at him. And the receptionist said, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. Go home and call the 1-800 number. That would never happen with one of our practices. That just that that level of organizational centralization, you know, and bureaucratization. Um, and so I think there's there's the tightness to the relationship in these communities with these practices that um, that I think accounts for some of the success we've had. Well, you know, when I, I listen to that story, um, it makes me think that what you're doing for these practices is bringing the joy of medicine back to the doctors. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about yeah. your one of our Pat, one of our docs, <laughs> one of our docs who I love said, um, you know, it's not less work to do this with Allidaid, but it's more meaning. Right. And that's, I think if you ask most doctors, why did they go into medicine? They went into it. They would mostly say, I went into it to help patients, but yeah. to have a meaningful life, right? To feel yeah. like you made a contribution. Um, right. So I think that that's really uh, fantastic. But what I'd like to hear from you now is um, well, how many practices and how many physicians have you worked with? 
and then give us some of the results. Um, how many people are actually getting shared savings? What you describe that you do sounds pretty expensive to me. It sounds like a lot of people. So are people actually making money after they pay you or is Alliday getting rich and, and they're still you know, back there with their kind of primary care incomes? And yeah. then I want to hear about physician satisfaction. So if you could wrap all of that up. Oh, sure. I'll give you the stats. Okay. I'll give you the stats. So um, we have 550 practices in 28 states that we work with. Uh, believe it or not, that's eight and a half billion dollars under management. Wow. Which is crazy. It's just how expensive healthcare is. Um, but let's just take the, the 350,000 lives about who were with Medicare and the Medicare Shared Savings Program last year. The results just came out. And for those 350,000 seniors, mostly, who we cared for um, in, in those contracts, uh, we saved 10,000 hospitalizations. 10,000 hospitalizations averted. Uh, that was $180 million of savings. Wow. So Medicare got to keep, Medicare and the taxpayer, got to keep about half of those savings. Good for them, right? So that left, you know, $90 million odd. And of those $90 million, $55 million went right to the practices. We don't take our costs out first. We just take whatever comes in and the docs, depending on the contract, one-sided contracts, generally 60% of it goes to the docs. So if they don't do well, you don't do well. So you, we you are more incentives, incentives too. If they are do aligned. Right. So you're motivated to right. all the practices, every single That's one right. uh, does That's the right thing. So they don't pay for, they don't pay for our tech. They don't pay for our coaching. They don't, they don't pay for that upfront. It all comes out of, our share of our savings and they get to keep their share of, of the savings. And then, you know, it came to about $150,000 per practice on average. Uh, some of our commercial contracts is even better than that. Um, we have, you know, the, the average hospital ACO saved $80 a patient. The average physician led ACO saved about $160 a patient. Our ACO saved on average $350 a patient and it's growing up. Um, the more you, the longer you're with us, the higher those, those savings go. Um, so it's, it's meaningful. Um, it's meaningful to the meaningful income to the practices and particularly in the time of COVID, it has really helped, um, keep some of the, the, the practices, uh, thriving and afloat. We're not going to let any of our practices go out of business. So tell me a little bit about some of the other outcomes. So great financial outcomes, it sounds like. What about clinical outcomes? Do you, do you have, I mean, it, it, it's nice to save hospitalizations, but have you saved lives? Um, I, I think we, we have. I think that the, you know, getting 80% blood pressure control in the Mississippi Delta uh, probably <laughs> saves a few lives and, 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 and strokes. I think hospitals are dangerous places and having fewer hospitalizations, 10,000 fewer hospitalizations, I'm sure that translates into into fewer um fewer deaths uh as as well fewer 23 percent fewer days in skilled nursing facilities um so i i do think that those are really hard outcomes um apart from you know all the clinical quality we're at like 94 percent on the on the quality measure uh index uh with medicare so i i think that 
it really, we live by good for patients, good for doctors, good for society. And, um, and I think we and, and other physician-led ACOs have delivered on that. What we need to do now is to scale it. We're still at you know, only, I don't know, four or five million uh, patients, Medicare patients out of 50 million are in physician-led ACOs. And the model works and we need to, we need to, we need to take steps to, to expand that. And we're doing our part, we're growing rapidly. We, I think, are gonna have added 200 practices this year during the pandemic. Wow. Uh, so we'll, we're expanding into a few more states and going really deep in some states like California. It's, it's, was a really fantastic new, new market for us. Um, so we're excited, uh, but a lot of work yet to be done. So it's interesting when you talk about scaling it, what role do you think uh, medical training has? You know, Kaiser now just enrolled their first class in their uh, Bernard Tyson Medical School. Yeah. And, 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 they, and these kids are all, gonna, these young people are all going to come out really understanding what you're having to teach this other generation of doctors. Um, are you guys involved in any way with, with formal education? I realize that you're probably stretched pretty thin with all the work that you have to do, but it seems like you would have a tre tremendous amount to offer um, in terms of, of getting this ingrained in future doctors at an earlier stage. Yeah, I would, I would love to. We're, we're actually talking with some of the medical um, societies in terms of sponsoring uh, things like fellowships. Um, for students who are interested uh, in in primary care, to explore this aspect of it, and and in particular, I think I you know, look. I have tremendous admiration for today's primary care docs, and I think that what they're doing is you know ninety percent aligned with the best we could be doing. Right? It's just that adding in that ten percent of thinking on the population health side and giving them the tools and and um, the the financial ability to do that. What I worry about a lot is um, students who are graduating today who, you know, wouldn't dream of hanging up their own shingle. And I think we got to make it easier for them to, particularly the entrepreneurial ones among them, to see the, the excitement and the opportunity of, um, you know, having their own business or joining together with a partner and starting something together and doing it you know, in, in this exciting new realm of value-based care where the returns can be huge if you can actually succeed at reducing hospitalizations and, and, and sickness. So that to me is, you know, maybe the, if I, if I were going to start up a school, <laughs> uh, I love the, I love, I love the, the Kaiser way. And, and I was a huge admirer of, of Bernard and I, I can't, I get emotional thinking about the school being named after him, but a, you know, an allidate version of that school would have more of an emphasis on entrepreneurialism as well. Oh, well, that's interesting because you talked initially about needing choice. And I know when I went to Kaiser to practice, people, you know, most of my friends would not have made that choice. And what you're doing is, I believe, saving these independent practices from just disappearing, which is what some people predicted a few years ago that yep. everybody would either work for a Geisinger or they'd be owned by a hospital. So as far as that, we've covered a lot. What I wanted to do is just to have you close with 
where are you going to go from here? Is it just about scaling up and getting more and more practices? Do you have uh, new um, things that you're going to roll out to help the practices? What, what's on the horizon for you guys? Yeah, more, more better. Um, <laughs> I think more practices and continuing to serve all, um, all kinds of, of independent practices from the solo docs to the multi-specialty clinics to the federally qualified rural health clinics. So continuing to uh, serve all segments and all, all uh, product lines. So we're doing a big expansion into Medicaid uh, we love the Medicare Advantage uh, market opportunity, uh, fully insured business. I think self-insured employers are getting a raw deal and aren't getting as much access to, to value-based deals. So we'd love to expand that as well. And then we want to be able to do more. I think we have a, we've built a platform and we've built that trust relationship with our practices and we can extend that to going deeper on, on opportunities to, to make a difference. And, you know, using our, the data and the relationships to identify patients who are going to fail into dialysis, identifying patients who could benefit from palliative care, identifying patients better and for, for whom behavioral health uh, can be important. So going deeper clinically and in, in, in terms of the savings and then serving, serving more people. That's keep doing what we're doing better, deeper, more. Well, I think we'll let that be the last word. Um, it was fantastic to catch up with you to see how much progress you made. Thank you, Pat. To learn more about Allidaid, accountable care organizations, and the move to value-based care, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.